Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're testing the air for tigers and digging up dead bodies as we explore the exciting new field of environmental DNA. What if you could tell what animals had passed through an area without ever having to see the animals? Or figure out whether a shipwreck at the bottom of a dark and murky ocean contained human remains buried in the mud? These are very real possibilities thanks to advances in the field of environmental DNA, or eDNA for short. One of the pioneers in this field is Professor Elizabeth Clare at York University, Toronto, Ontario. Her lab have been developing techniques for sucking eDNA out of the air for use in conservation. But before she tells us more about that, I asked her to explain what is eDNA. eDNA is, it stands for environmental DNA. And it's basically any material we collect that doesn't come directly from an individual or an animal. So if I come and swab your cheek, that's a direct sample that I'm taking from you. But if I just collect something in your environment where you've shed little bits of skin cells and hair cells and DNA into your environment, that is environmental DNA. So it's a generalized term for all the DNA material that doesn't come directly from an animal or a person. And how much of this eDNA is around? Is there anywhere on Earth that doesn't have eDNA? Well, that's the most amazing thing. A few years ago, if you'd asked me that question, I think we would have said it was fairly rare and it was hard to find. But now, increasingly, the more places we look, the more places we find it. It's been found on the surfaces of leaves. You can wash a forest and get DNA. We're finding it in footprints left behind in snow, trapped in honey, trapped on the surfaces of insects as they walk around. You can swab the insects and get other insects' DNA off them. It's just everywhere. I think we live in this soup of DNA floating everywhere. And it's in the soil, it's in the air, it's in the water, it's just pervasive everywhere. And it's probably the hottest topic in the molecular ecology field right now is where can I get more environmental DNA? And most recently, what we got the idea to do was actually filter the air. We know that things like viruses and bacteria and pollens, a lot of pathogens have literally evolved the ability to disperse through the air. So we know we can collect those. We've known that for a while. But the concept that little degrading cells from animals could also be literally floating around in the air to collect was a relatively new idea. And how do you go about sampling the air without knowing that you're just sampling like your own breath at the same time? (laughs) Because we are a 70 kilo lump of DNA excreting material. (laughs) We absolutely are. So we got the idea as this sort of crazy concept. And my lab has a history of trying slightly crazy things. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But we knew that the DNA was being shed into the environment because we know it's in the soil. So there was not a big leap to think that, well, if it's going into soil, it must get there through the air. And so we had this idea to try and find the most likely place where we might get concentrations of DNA in air. And in the facility I worked, we had colonies of naked mole rats. And so we thought, well, if we're going to try it somewhere, 
that is the most likely place that we'll find a signal. So in the lab, inside a room, you've got, what, these tanks of dirt and these, what are they, hand-sized rodents? Yeah, they're sort of bigger than a mouse and smaller than a guinea pig. And they live in these big colonies. And so we took the air from inside their burrows and then also from in the room. To our total shock, not only did we get tons of DNA inside the burrows, we got the DNA in the room as well. And that room was full of naked mole rat DNA, people DNA from the people who were looking after the animals. We even found dog DNA in the room. And that one puzzled us for a really long time until we tracked back and found that one of the people who fed the naked mole rats looked after his mother's dog on the weekend. And so now we got this idea that rather than being a hard thing to find, that we would only find in like really tiny trace amounts inside the burrows, we're actually seeing DNA being tracked back and forth between homes by the researchers themselves. And so it's actually turned out to be easier to collect than we thought. It's easier to collect, but then you must be swamped with data when you're sequencing it because you've got the opposite problem, right? You thought you wouldn't get much DNA and so you sequence it and then you, you see what you've got. But now it turns out there's so much DNA. How do you go about working out what species each bit of DNA is from? So you're quite right. We're basically collecting a soup, a mixed soup of all different kinds of DNA and all kinds of stuff in that sample. We target a tiny little piece of DNA, a really small fragment of the most abundant form of DNA that we can get from animals, the mitochondrial DNA. And these are bits of DNA markers that are known to be able to differentiate different species. We can't tell apart individuals, we can tell apart species. And we amplify that signal for a target group like mammals or birds, and then we sequence it en masse. And then we can play some pretty simple biomimetic tricks on the computer to separate all those signals out. We have these wonderful big libraries of known DNA we can compare to. And it's kind of like the children's card game, Go Fish. You know, I've got one of these, have you got a match to it in your database? And we look for these perfect matches. And we're doing really well at identifying the sources of those signals, in most cases down to the species level. Not to underplay how incredible it is that you can find DNA from the air, but okay, you've managed to say that there are mole rats in a mole rat lab. Well done. How else <laughs> can this be used? Well, because we got excited by this, it was basically proof of concept. Is it even possible to get DNA out? So then we set out to do some real exploration experiments. The first thing we did was went to a local zoo. And the zoo is great because it's a concentration of non-native species. And if I go to the British countryside near a zoo and I find tiger, there's only one source for tiger DNA in that environment. So we know- You hope. We hope. You really we, hope. We really hope. But we know then with complete certainty where that signal came from. So we can figure out, is this a real signal and how far did it come? So that was our first sort of controlled experiment that we did. And we were really successful with that. So how far away from, say, the tiger enclosure were you able to find tiger eDNA? In our first experiments, we estimated up to about 300 meters the signal was oh, traveling. Quite far then. Yeah, it wasn't bad in terms of getting it across. And so then we decided to go and test this under different circumstances, much more normal, wild circumstances. So the first thing that happened was we were contacted by a team of researchers who had been studying plant DNA in dust. And they had been collecting dust out in the environment and analyzing plant DNA from it. And they said to us, well, we found plants, but we never looked for animals. Can you check our samples for animal DNA? This is Southern US in Texas. 
in a, a really well-known rangeland. And so we looked at their every two-week samples and we found really good signals of local wildlife. So for instance, in the season where their area dries out and the vegetation disappears, you really don't find many animals out there. But once it cools off and the vegetation comes back, suddenly all the animals get really active and it's actually breeding season. And we suddenly start seeing spikes in other interesting animals, pocket gophers and frogs. And wow, so you're almost not just getting a presence absence data, but I'm imagining a curve where it's like, oh, suddenly it's rocketed up and then slowly it'll decay over time. Pretty much. So each of our samples is really just a presence absence test. But when you get lots of those samples over a period of time, you start to see patterns. One of the most specific signals we saw was this little ephemeral toad, which normally lives effectively in the mud. And when there's a sudden environmental change and it gets wet, it comes out and breeds. And in this rangeland, there was a dried out pond. And then there was a sudden signal of toads and we went back and tracked the environmental conditions. And in the two weeks before the toad signal appeared, there was a massive rainstorm. And so we think the rainstorm basically hydrated this little ephemeral pond. The toads get active, come out, breed, we catch their DNA, and then they go away again. And of course, no one needs to have actually seen the toad for you to know what had happened and piece all no. the bits of the puzzle together. Exactly. And so with the sort of success of this passive dust collection, we decided to go and really test the system. And we actually invented a whole new form of filter um, that works on batteries. We modified some other designs that were out there to something that we could carry with us. Yeah, what does it um, look like, your eDNA sampling machine? <laughs> well, my sampling machine is a combination of a fan and some 3D printed housing. And how big is it? We've made multiple different versions. One is the size of a coin. It runs off a USB, like you can just plug- A coin? Yeah, a, sort of a big, like if you're in the UK- A 2 piece. Yeah. Or a two pound coin. Yeah, it's about maybe less than an inch across. If you're you know, in the continental US or Canada, it's more like a silver dollar or a loonie. That's tiny. It's tiny. And it runs on um, a little battery that cost us you know, $9 at the local business supply, just the kind of thing you charge your cell phone off. God, you could pop that anywhere. Yeah. Our large ones are only about four inches across at most. They're not very big at all. And we were using sort of a, an intermediate size that we find the easiest to use. It, it's more powerful in terms of its sucking ability. So we we packed as many of these we could, as we could into literally our carry-on luggage. And my brilliant student, Nina, and I headed down to Central America to a field site we work on. And so we're bat biologists, most of us on this big team that goes every year and we study this population. And two of us are the taxonomists. So we are in charge of identifying every single individual bat that comes in. And over the course of two weeks, more than a thousand individual bats are brought into this room for identification. And then they go out again that same night. How do you catch a bat? Well, you use a, a kind of net. It's very, very fine filaments like a fish net, but much, much finer. And they fly into it and they get caught. And then you pull them out and you put them in a little cloth bag because they just curl up and go to sleep in there and you carry them back. Oh, so it's like what they do for birds. It's exactly the same as birds, although sometimes even finer nets. But if you think about this room that we're in, it's like a cave. So think of it as an artificial cave. And all the bats come and go every night. We catch them in our nets. We bring them back. They go into the room. We identify them and then they go out of the room again as if they were coming and going. 
And so in this highly controlled environment, we know precisely how many of every single species came and went from that room on what days. We had, I think we had 35 species of bat that came and went from that room and the people and other stuff that came and went. And the question was, how much of this could we have recovered with DNA only in the room? And the answer was astonishingly high amounts. We got about 90% accuracy at diagnosing or describing the complexity of that community. We picked out bats where we only had one individual in that room. And there was a hundred other bats that night. But it also, our own activities had a really interesting effect on our data. So one of the biggest questions people ask is, could you estimate the number of individuals from the sample? So we know that species X was there. Can I tell you how many? And the answer was astonishingly yes. There's a quite good relationship between number of individuals and DNA signal. But then there were these four weird exceptions, and it took forever for me to work out why four species were way off this relationship. And it turns out I'm the problem. So I'm the chief identifier. I'm the chief taxonomist. My job is to look at every single individual and confirm its identification. For some bats, that's really easy. It's that. You don't look at it. It's obvious. And for others, it takes a lot more effort. I can do most species in a few seconds and some take a little longer and you have to look and you've got your microscope or you've got your hand lens or you're, in my case, my reading glasses on trying to see little features and identify them. And when I finally looked at this graph we'd made of number of animals and signal of DNA, and I suddenly realized there were three groups of bats that were hugely overrepresented. We had too much DNA for the numbers there. They were the ones that are the hardest to identify. So I spent more time looking at those individuals to confirm who they were. And so my actions as the local bat identification expert actually influenced the amount of DNA in the air that we sampled. And then there was one bat where its DNA was really low compared to what we would have expected given its abundance, and those were vampire bats. You don't even have to look at those. If you touch the bag they're in, they emit a noise that's really characteristic, and you go, oh, it's a vampire bat. I have to ask, what does the vampire bat sound like? They're a bit like creepy cats. They kind of emit this little screaming noise and it's really characteristic. So, you know, you don't really have to do much to confirm them. You can just open the bag, look in and go, yeah, that's what it is and put it back. So those ones I don't handle very much. And those are our four exceptions to the nice little prediction rule. The hard to identify, the really easy to identify. And it really is the exceptions that prove the rule. Yes, exactly. But we also had some really interesting things. So when you do this kind of work, there's lots of DNA you would just normally discard because it doesn't meet lots of your quality requirements for a signal. We decided because this was so new and we had no idea it was really there that we would try to track down every single one of those bits of noise that we nearly always throw out. And some of them were really interesting. So for instance, there were four sources of bat DNA that were not possible in Central America. These are African species. So why was there DNA in that room? Oh, this is a puzzle. Oh, it is. Is it a bat lab? Has someone <laughs> got some dried taxidermied African bats as reference samples in there? Has someone been eating bats? No, but several of the individuals who came had been working with those animals a month previously in the wild in Africa. It's like the dog on your researcher's coat in the lab, the mole rat lab. It's the dog in the mole rat lab. And so what we think was happening was we're actually seeing these minute traces of DNA coming on people's luggage and being introduced into the environment. 
So your definition of clean must be so much stricter than everybody else's definition of clean. My definition of clean just got a lot higher. So then we had one more experiment that we did, and this was our our first to truly apply this to do something in biology. So we we went out and deployed the same samplers in a whole variety of different roosts where the bats are actually living in the wild. And some of these are roosts that we know really well, that we've been studying for a long time. Others are roosts that we can't enter. They're too dangerous. They're unstable. We can't get physically to them. And so there were some roosts that we've never been able to survey fully. And so we put our samplers in all of these different places and we started measuring wild populations. And again, worked brilliantly well. We got signals from all the bats we would expect to be there. The coolest thing for us was that in one of these tree roosts, a giant big hollow tree, we caught the signal of a bat we've never seen. And every sampler we put in that tree recorded the same thing. So we got multiple signals that it's real for a bat, which the key that I helped write for that location, we think white-winged vampire bats are present, but we've never caught one. Keep an eye out. So we had written a prediction that they were there. We felt they were there. We thought they were there. Why did you think they were there if you hadn't seen them up to this point? It's the right environment. It's the right habitat. There's other vampire bats there. These ones are a bit hard to catch in nets. They tend to avoid them pretty well. And we were just waiting for someone to bring one back. And the DNA samplers found them in the tree. And that just goes to show how useful these kind of technologies can be for conservation purposes as well. How is eDNA being used already in a kind of very practical sense, not just, oh, can we see if it works, but actually we are using this as a tool to find out information we couldn't otherwise get? Well, mostly it's been used in aquatic systems. So there it's become very, very routine to include aquatic sampling in your environmental DNA sample, things like searching for invasives or rare species, just like our vampire bat that we predicted was there but hadn't confirmed yet. So we know that these kind of technologies work really well. I work in collaboration with one of the world's leading environmental DNA companies called Nature Metrics. They are helping us develop the technology further. And one of the things that Nature Metrics does is works with a lot of governments and conservation organizations providing high quality facilities and data for conservation applications. And so one of the things that is coming down the line, I think, is the idea that it's being built into law built into regulatory monitoring programs. So we're gonna start seeing a lot more requirement of environmental filtering of different kinds of sources to learn about the environment as part of our regulation of our own impact on the planet. That was Elizabeth Clare from York University, Toronto, Ontario. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? As we just heard from Elizabeth, eDNA is already being used as a tool to help conservation efforts all around the world, looking for endangered species that would otherwise be hard to spot. But if you're anything like me, you're probably asking whether this could be used to detect human DNA and how that might be useful. Well, one such project is the Missing in Action Recovery and Identification Project, 
a collaborative effort spanning multiple disciplines of genetics, marine biology and archaeology, hoping to use eDNA to locate the remains of military service personnel. I had a chat with Dr. Kirsten Meyer Kaiser, a marine biologist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and one of the leads on this project, and I asked her to tell us more about it. The project was initiated by DPAA, that stands for the Defense POWMIA Accounting Agency. It's a branch of the U.S. Department of Defense that is tasked with locating the remains of fallen service members and repatriating them so their remains can be buried and their families can have closure. So normally the way DPAA operates is they partner with a lot of archaeologists and they go out and do these extremely complicated work-intensive excavations where they meticulously go through a site square meter by square meter to try to locate remains. They're sieving sediments, they're documenting everything. And they wanted to speed up that process. They wanted to figure out a way to prioritize sites that they knew contained human remains, potentially localize those remains to a specific region of the site. And, you know, if at all possible, we're not sure if we can do this quite yet, but figure out who the remains might belong to. So we've just been hearing about eDNA, environmental DNA, and you've been using this as a tool to try and help find these fallen service members. How does that work? Because you're looking in an entire ocean and DNA can move. There are lots of people in the ocean, not just dead ones. So how does eDNA help you pinpoint any level of accuracy? You have just outlined the questions for our pilot project. This this is exactly what we're trying to figure out. So DPAA was interested in using eDNA, and when they approached us, the first thing that we said was, okay, well, we need to ground truth this. We need to figure out if this works. And so the current project that we're talking about is designed to do that ground truthing, designed to figure out is eDNA an effective tool? How can we refine it? Can we use it? to pinpoint remains? Can we use it to just identify a general site where there might be human remains? On what spatial scale? On what temporal scale? In what environments? Is it the most effective? Those are the questions that we're trying to figure out right now. And the end goal is that we'll come up with a protocol that can be used in the future. But right now, it's just like the very basic, does this work? Talk me through what it's like to actually collect these samples, because it's the thing I think I love the most about eDNA researchers is that they go to some weird lengths to get their DNA samples. (laughs) So we had three different test beds, Saipan, the Great Lakes and Palermo, Italy. Saipan and Palermo are both World War II sites. These are plane wrecks that went down during World War II with suspected or known remains. So when I say suspected, that means there was a loss. Somebody died in that plane wreck. We don't know if their body is in the plane, around the plane, or if they ejected and landed somewhere else. But we strongly suspect there's going to be someone there. And we wanted to figure out, like, does eDNA work better in some environments versus others? And so the three test beds that we had 
had contrasting conditions for us to be able to test. So Saipan is warm and shallow. The Great Lakes is deep and cold. Palermo, Italy, that's in the Mediterranean, is deep and kind of medium temperature. And so the combination of those three should show us whether eDNA is a good tool in each of those environments. I kind of suspect that we're going to find temperature and light exposure to have a significant impact on DNA degradation or our ability to detect something, meaning that something like the Great Lakes, where it's deep and it's cold and it's not very highly disturbed, would be the best environment. How deep and cold is deep and cold? So the wrecks that we're doing in the Great Lakes, uh, about 70 meters maximum depth. And I don't know if you've ever dove in the Great Lakes, but it's pretty darn close to freezing, like 35, 40 degree Fahrenheit water. Oh, wow. Yeah, because 32 is freezing point for Fahrenheit. Is that right? Exactly. Yep. And presumably the amount of ocean currents is also going to have a huge impact on how much of the DNA stays in place. I mean, the Great Lakes are big, but presumably they don't have these same kind of directional currents as the more open ocean sites. Correct. Yeah, I am a little suspicious about the water samples. So we were collecting sediment and water samples. And I honestly think that the water samples are going to be the least valuable for what we collect because water moves. As you've just said, the current can carry something away. You can have turnover, you can have mixing, any number of oceanographic processes that carry that DNA away from the site, whereas the sediment might be a little more promising. I'm putting my faith right now in the sediment samples and hoping that those can show us on a localized level where remains might be. And you said that on those sites, there's a high probability that there are human remains in there. Surely a dive site that's in beautiful clear water at only 10 metres has had so many tourist divers that by now someone would have spotted a body if there was a body. Not if the body is inside the plane. So your standard recreational diver is not going to be going inside the fuselage. That's the middle part of the plane. That's the body. So we were trying to search using that as our epicenter getting as close as we could to the fuselage to see if we could find the eDNA signal in the sediment or in the water. I agree if there was anything visible, somebody would have spotted it. But I mean, this has been sitting there since World War II. It's probably been covered by sediment plenty of times. There's probably been typhoons that came through and mixed everything up. And if the body's inside the plane, then it's a lot less visible. And then back in the lab, what are the steps you have to go through to extract the DNA from the sediment? So the field processing for the water samples was pretty simple. It was just filter. We used 0.2 micron filters because that was a pretty good size to get DNA, including anything that was intracellular floating around in the water. And for the sediment, there was a more complicated procedure of sectioning the sediment cores that we got. This was part of the archaeological influence on the project. Archaeologists usually work in strata of 10 centimeters. So zero to 10 centimeters of sediment and then 10 to 20. So our cores were 20 centimeters long and we split them in half. Ideally, you're supposed to be able to take the stoppers on the top and bottom 
off of the core, put it on this little stand, push it down, get the sediment to come up out of the tube and take your subsample. In some cases, it was so difficult to do that, that we ended up having to like take the stoppers off, put it on the stand, but you can't push the tube down to get the sediment to come up and out. So you just take your subsample by like pushing a syringe into the top to get like your little mini core and then flip the core over to get to the bottom stratum. That was like the thing that worked best. Yeah, I suppose it's so used to being fully saturated with water that it's not as consolidated as normal soil would be. Yeah, I come from a deep sea background. And so all of the sediment samples I was used to working with were very fine, very fluffy. And so they're easy to work. You can just push your tube down. It all hangs together. It's not too compacted. But when you're working with a coarser grain like sand that was at most of our sites, then you've got to get creative. And when it came to flipping the core upside down, I was like, oh, yes, this is improv science. (laughs) (laughs) I I love the amount of MacGyvering that goes on in science. People think that we have all of our ideas properly solidified, that we're using very high-tech equipment, but no. No, we are making it up as we go. A hundred percent. That was Dr. Kirsten Meyer-Kaiser from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Another lead on the Missing in Action Recovery and Identification Project and one of Kirsten's collaborators is Charles Konsitsky, Associate Director at the Biotechnology Centre at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Before we dive back into the details of how it's possible to extract and sequence the human eDNA from the sediment cores and water samples, I first wanted to know about the uses for human eDNA more generally. How has eDNA been used for human DNA already? Because we've heard a lot about it being used for bats and zoos, and I've come across it being used in conservation, all of these kind of ecological side. But in the back of my brain, I'm like, oh my God, we now have this technology that can find which humans have been passing through a room. Like the thought of what forensics and police could do with that is kind of scary. I'm not going to lie. So what is the reality of how it's actually been used for human DNA? It's now come to the forefront. So it's it's very new. And I think you're seeing a lot more use of this. As you stated, it can be used in a forensic sense as well. I mean, you can take a sample of air and extract the DNA from what is within that to determine who was in that environment, you know, just recently. Who walked through the crime scene. Yes. If you were there soon enough. Yes. We have an idea of a type of micro vacuum that we've kind of created that would have plates inside that that would grab the material. So if an investigator would walk in first with this vacuum, they could get the material in the air in real time. And has that been you? So what is science fact and what is science fiction? Right. Going in the forensic focus, the idea is if somebody were to, talking about a crime scene, if somebody were to bury somebody and then they removed the remains, but then transported them somewhere else, the goal is you could test the soil where that initial site was, extract the human DNA, compare it to a reference family member and say, yes, the remains were here. So that is the hopes in developing this further. And I mean, that is, from a 
technological, methodological point of view, kind of similar to what you're doing, right? Yes. In that you're looking for remaining DNA in sediments. It just so happens that yours is tens of meters under the sea and a few decades old. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we actually have been working with the University of Nebraska Lincoln, uh, where they have a swine field and we have samples of the soil before they put a swine down in the field. And then we will then also go back there and test to see how the DNA plumes from the site, but then other contaminants as well. Wait, you're saying swine field. I remember a story back in the day where a lab buried bodies yes. in order to see how bodies decompose for forensic purposes. Is that what we're talking about when you say swine field? Exactly, that is exactly, yes. So it's a field with dead pigs, presumably to monitor how, what the process, the biological process of decomposition is like? For eDNA, yes, in sediment DNA, yes. So we're looking to see how it plumes out, if it plumes away, down, what the activities, and then also the microenvironment. How does the microenvironment change too? So we're looking at the bacterias within that environment too, to help because we're hoping that has a similar um, relation to the microenvironment where humans are buried as well, or we're hoping we can tell by that microenvironment that there is this change. Yes. So it shows that a human was buried in the site at some period of time. And are you going to be chucking pigs in the Great Lakes then to see if that affects the setup? Because this will be on land, presumably, if you're chucking it in a field. Correct. You, a lot of your research is going to be looking for bodies underwater. Is, are there plans to drop pigs under the sea? Uh, no, not at this time. But we do have we have an aquatic and a terrestrial focus, so we have we have both focuses that we're working on. Great idea, though. I don't know who would accept it. <laughs> so one of the big questions I have for your project is: there's a lot of human DNA in the ocean. Yes, there are now eight billion people on the planet. Most of them live near the sea. How on earth, from a biotechnology point of view? Are you going to be able to separate out all of that background human DNA from the DNA that you're interested in? That's the work that we have ahead of us, the, the heavy work <laughs> ahead of us. Because yes, there's human DNA everywhere. But a lot of that will be statistically and bioinformatically, a lot of that will need to be figured out. And that's one of the things that we've been working with. And when you say bioinformatics, what do you mean? We've got a lab that is focused specifically on working with the data and extracting and identifying what we have within that. So we extract all of the DNA and then we sequence everything, you know, a deep sequence. And then our informatics team does the analysis and sorts that out for us. And once you've got the DNA out of the sediment, which is a lot easier to say than do, I imagine, mm -hmm. is there ever going to be the chance that you can then reconstruct the fragments to a high enough fraction of the genome that then you can identify not only have we found a person in this plane wreck shipwreck but we know who it was so our hopes we have three phases phase one is that we can extract human dna and we can see human dna which we have done that and that has been successful our second phase is, can we determine the ethnicity with the material that we have? So that will help in regions where like a country doesn't allow one to extract or do a recovery mission. If they're a native 
burials nearby, we could actually test the soil to determine if they're native or not native by the ethnicity of the DNA. And then the third phase is um, identification. Can we obtain enough material to give a probability that this individual to the reference sample is 65%. There's much to be done, but the three aims are our current focus at this moment. And I imagine that middle one, especially because you're looking at like World War One, World War Two sites, if you've got European American ethnicity outside of Japan, for example, or vice versa, chances are it's going to be an enemy fighter from for, for that region. Exactly. You, you're right on. <laughs> what would the success of this project mean for this kind of repatriation of bodies and finding missing service people more generally? Well, it's not just focused on missing service people. The current project is, but in hopes with other projects where there are mass burials of individuals from past conflicts that need to be investigated. So forensically, this can be a new era for seeking the missing out. And that's our hopes here is that we can help move this along to help with that recovery mission and possible missing individuals in general. If a container that you knew individuals were housed in, in transport, you could swab the whole container and then sequence it and use it as a reference to missing family members. You know, biology is impressive. It is absolutely fascinating and many things can be done with it. We haven't even touched the forefront of it. That was Charles Konsitsky from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. That's all for now. Thanks to our guests, Elizabeth Clare, Kirsten Meyer-Kaiser and Charles Konsitsky. Next time is going to be the final episode for 2022. So to round off the year, we're going to be taking a look back at some of our favourite stories and interviews. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented by me, Sally LePage. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, the logo was designed by James Mayle and audio production was by Emma Werner. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.